Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And we have Sarah Manguso today on the show. Her new book is 300 Arguments, out from Grey Wolf. I'm so excited to speak with Sarah. Me too. I loved her book. So let's get to it. So today we're talking with Sarah Manguso. Sarah is the author of seven books, including Ongoingness, The Guardians, and The Two Kinds of Decay. She has received a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Hodder Fellowship, and the Rome Prize for her writing, and she currently serves as the Mary Root Chair of Creative Writing at Scripps College. Her newest book is 300 Arguments, which we'll be discussing today. Thank you, Sarah, for being here. It's my pleasure. We're thinking maybe we could start with you reading a little bit from the book. Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. I guess I'll just read from the beginning. Sounds yeah. good. I'll do a couple pages. There are short. more or less three arguments per page, so here goes. A great photographer insists on writing poems. A brilliant essayist insists on writing novels. A singer with a voice like an angel insists on singing only her own terrible songs. So when people tell me I should try to write this or that thing I don't want to write, I know what they mean. You might as well start by confessing your greatest shame. Anything else would just be exposition. It can be worth foregoing marriage for sex, and it can be worth foregoing sex for marriage. It can be worth foregoing parenthood for work, and it can be worth foregoing work for parenthood. Every case is orthogonal to all the others. That's the entire problem. I assume the cadets are gay, but then I see they are merely unafraid of love. They are preparing to go to war, and with so little time to waste, they say what they mean. At faculty meetings, I sat next to people whose books had sold two million copies. Success seemed so close, just within reach. On subway benches, I sat next to people who were gangrenous, dying, but I never thought I'd catch what they had. What's worse, offending someone or lying to someone? Saying something stupid when it's your turn or not saying anything? Tell me which, and I'll tell you your problem. Thank you. Thanks. Sure. Sarah, would you tell us a little bit about your new book, 300 Arguments, in terms of giving readers a sense of its form and what it is? Sure. This book was written mostly with great pleasure as a procrastination exercise while I was trying to write a different book. That different book, which doesn't exist, and who knows if it ever will exist, in my imagination is this long book, you know, a magnum opus about whiteness and hate in Boston and my family. And I've tried to approach it in various different ways over the last 15 years or so, fiction, nonfiction, poetry. And so in this latest attempt to write it, I started writing these one-liners as kind of an aside. I think I craved the feeling that I had completed something, completed anything at all. And so I became very attracted to writing these very short prose pieces. And I started accumulating them and I 
didn't think to myself, I'm writing an alternate book. I just accumulated them. I have notes on notes on notes. It wasn't until I had about 200 of them that I thought, oh, this could, you know, I was thinking maybe it could be an essay because, you know, it's certainly not long enough for, you know, an actual book. And then I thought, you know, 200, it's still a little thin. I'm still enjoying writing them. Maybe I'll keep going. And so I set myself the goal of 300 as yet another arbitrary goal. And it was much harder to get to 300. I was really straining at the end. And so when I finally came up with 300 that I could live with, I thought 500 seems like a really, (laughs) you know, a, a grand enough endeavor to kind of present to my editor as potentially maybe the next book. But I didn't want to keep writing it out of a sense of obligation. So I just kind of worried and sanded away at and ruminated on these 300 and with input from various smart people of taste and intelligence, I massaged them into the order that they eventually Ah. took. And then it was a book. And it was still a book that was written uh, relatively easily in comparison to other things I've worked on. Putting them in order was a little bit, you know, left me a little bruised. But the writing of it, as long as I was thinking of it as just this sort of hooky, this procrastination Mm -hmm. exercise, it was a great pleasure. And were you thinking of them as, definitely the book does seem to have a kind of a compiled wisdom to it. Like, I imagine that these are things that you'd maybe thought about for a long time. So is that... Yeah, I mean, they vary. But definitely I'd thought about some of them more than others. Some were momentary responses to things that had happened in a day. And some were responses to things that I'd been, as you said, thinking about for years and years. And so when you call them arguments, it's kind of somewhere between a essay and an aphorism or thinking of them in any particular form or accomplishing anything. Yes, I like your proposal of 50-50 essay and aphorism. I knew I didn't want to call them aphorisms. The term has just this sort of like puff of mildew about it. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know what to call them really. And so I, I did a bit of etymological research and I found that arguments has a lot of wonderful, archaic definitions. And I collected 15 of them, and they together, I think, encompass all of the different modes that I've been trying to write in. And while I was writing the book, I kept a list of these definitions, and may I read it to you? Oh, sure. Please. So this is how I define argument, and many of these are sort of like lifted out of my old Latin grammar. I mean, these aren't all in sort of the, you know, whatever edition of the dictionary we're on now. So here are my definitions. Subject, theme, sign, mark, token, proof, hint, plot, declaration, evidence, burden, complaint, accusation, denouncement, and betrayal. Mm. Covers a lot. It does. I mean, it also, it makes sense in some ways because much of what you discuss or one of the subjects you discuss in this is the nature of fragments, how people understand fragments. A lot of your arguments, in fact, deal with that. In some ways, it makes sense that you think of argument as such a widely encompassing form. Yeah, it's a capacious word if you look at it in all its history. And you're right, you know, the arguments about fragments are some of my dearest ones, are some of my most beloved ones. I was asked a few days ago whether I would balk if anybody described any of these as poetry, and I said, absolutely not. But 
there is one label that I would balk at, and that's fragment, because each mm-hmm. of these is complete in itself. Okay. And together they, you know, I hope present a coherent essay, but it's not an essay composed of fragments. Something I like in the discussion of form in the book is, you know, this idea of that even a title of a book, like that a sentence can be enough, can fill you with wonder, can keep you thinking about it for a long time, that there's a completeness in a single line. There can be, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. and I think that's probably, because you have a background in poetry. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite lines in the book was, the smallest and shortest pieces of art strive for perfection, the largest and longest strive for greatness. Because I think that's so true and that the small, perfect book is like my preferred form, you know, oh. for sure. Well, it's very nice to meet another of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how in your writing career do you think that that's played out, that idea? And I got kind of a small narrative I got from the book is this idea of wanting to be a different writer, mm-hmm. wanting to write books that possibly would make a lot of money or pressure to do something different than you do. I wonder if that's been... An ever-present word. Yeah, exactly. Um, It's definitely something that I have thought about and continue to think about. This book that I described to you, you know, this imaginary book, this, you know, magnum opus that I haven't written that in my imagination is this perfect, long, fat, well-researched nonfiction book. If I'm honest with myself, it's a book that somebody else would write. It's not really a book that I think I would write. And one of the experiences that was important to me to try to articulate as I wrote 300 Arguments. You know, it isn't just specifically that I may not be the writer I at one point thought or maybe hoped I would turn out to be, but that the experience of arriving at midlife, which is this subjective category of experience, but I think once you're there, you sort of recognize that you're there. I think it can happen at a wide range of ages, but I'm there You know, I'm there and I can report from there and I can tell you that I think, you know, in most of the time now, I can admit that this imaginary book is just not a book that I'm going to write. I may write about some of those subjects in some form at some point, but this fat book is just not going to issue from this writer. Do you think that there is a way in which that fat book depends on an acceptance of imperfection? Right, that the greatness of something, let's say, like Middlemarch or which is perfect, but Moby Dick or something, is that there are points in those books where they're loose, they're baggy. Exactly. They're weird. Yes. Yeah. I was having this very conversation with a friend who writes long novels, and I was sort of trying to have the conversation without it being about her or about me. And so I asked her, you know, what, you know, what do you think of this other unnamed writer's novels? And <laughs> I said, they're not really perfect, are they? And she said, well, you know, fiction isn't perfect. It's all kinds of things. It can be perfect, but it's just, it's not chasing perfection at all times. And And I thought, yeah, you know, that's true. And I I read novels. I do read long books. I've never finished Middlemarch, which I'm sure says a great deal more about me than it does about George Eliot or anybody who (laughs) likes Middlemarch. But um, I only finished it because I was stricken with this really structured form of insomnia for about three months where I woke up every morning at around five and could not bring myself to get out of bed. And so every morning oh. until about 7.30, I would read Middlemarch and finished it. Well, you seem like it, a very disciplined person. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not actually, it was, it was a... Well, it's a type of discipline a, that, that seems impossible to me at this moment. Mm-hmm. Although I'm sure we each have our own modes of discipline that would feel unmanageable to just about anybody else. Yes. 
But yeah, you're right. The amount of weight and worry that the idea of perfection causes you, I, I think, is one of the major variables that determines the kind of work that you make, you know, if you're a, a maker, if you're an artist. I mean, something you write about in the book is also kind of having a horizon that it's almost necessary to have things that don't end or that, you know, not to get everything you want, because what would you have then? There's a lot of discussion of kind of longing and resolution in this book, where it seems that you're advocating maybe not to do everything you want to do or... Yeah, that's it. And I thought you were going to talk about the one about doing the dishes, well, but, right. That's, um, that's but a the good ones example, that you yeah. mentioned instead, I now see have something in common with the one about doing the dishes, which boils down to my fury that my husband never does all the dishes. We even have a joke like, oh, you did some of the dishes. <laughs> Right. But, you know, my worry, my sort of purely existential worry is that if I get everything out of my to-do folder, if I work in progress folder, I'm afraid I'll die. Right, so, right. So, you know, I absolutely understand in, in a greater context this central problem of not wanting to, you know, wanting to leave something unfinished, imperfect. Right, yeah. Or even with a huge book, this idea of putting every single thing you have into this book and making it, you know giving it everything, the greatest thing you could possibly do, and then kind of the question, what would happen after that? Oh, I haven't even really gotten that far. Okay, right. interesting <laughs> but as someone who, who does experiment so much with form or who does seem to gravitate towards concision and, you know, discrete paragraphs or chunks of text as opposed to long kind of windy narratives, is that something that came to you over time with your work? It seems like it has. I think it's definitely developed and changed a bit my attitude toward composition and my attitude toward what I want finished product to look like. But I think I have always had this great romance with concision and efficiency. Some of the first pieces of writing I ever published were, I don't know even how really to describe them. Some of them were narrative, some of them were essayistic, some of them were just accounts of dreams I had had, but they ran on the McSweeney's website in, gosh, I guess it must have been 2000. It couldn't have been much later than 2000. Mm. It was back before the website had become a humor outlet, which I think it still is now. McSweeney's has changed so much in the 20 years since I've been aware of it. But in the very beginning, it was sort of a clearinghouse for the weird. And, you know, anybody could kind of get some oddly shaped bit of short prose on the website. And there's this wonderful variability of, you know, you didn't know what was going to be on the website every mm -hmm. day. And, you know, the internet was just this genteel, small, modest thing. Mm -hmm. And people who were making literary and publishing experiments on it were, you know, fairly few. And so it was just a great time to sort of have these odds and ends. I still don't know where in the world they could run, even now, now that there are many more smaller magazines. But those were, you know, to get back to your question, they were composed of very small compositional units, like a sentence or two, white space, another sentence or two, and so on. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, Coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. This week, Vanessa Davis, cartoonist and author of Spaniel Rage, is back 
to give us a book recommendation. Vanessa, what are you recommending today? The book that I'm recommending today and always is 100 Demons by Linda Berry. It is a book that she did, I'm not even sure how many years ago, but it is a collection of short stories that she has created, and they all have a different theme at the center of them. She talks about her childhood and her teen years and the modern times and watching the news and being stressed out. But Linda Berry is kind of this goddess of writing and comics, and she makes you feel like everything is not okay, but like she loves you. <laughs> like, um, and, uh, and it also just kind of, it's one of the most inspiring books that I've read when I feel lost or when I feel like I don't know what I even want to talk about. The way the book is set up and the way the stories are set up and the kind of stories that she writes about and the connections that she makes are just amazing. She did this one story and it's about when she was a child and she, Linda Berry's Filipino and she went to the Philippines with her mom and made these two friends and they loved bugs. And the boy that she met wanted her, they discovered that fleas were different colors based on who they were sucking blood off of. Oh. I don't know. That doesn't sound true, but that was in the story. And so the boy sends her off and tells her to find the white flea. And then it cuts to her later in life when she's dating Ira Glass, although she doesn't say that it's Ira Glass. And and it just kind of portrays this horrible relationship that they had and like the kind of ways that they talked about it, the ways that they talked to each other. And she's like, I found the white flea. It's um, Ira Glass. <laughs> I think that it's it's ancient history, and I think it's all fine now between them. Not that I know, but there's just a lot of people that she writes about and a lot of things that she writes about. And it's just a really energizing, beautiful, accessible book that I would recommend to everyone. Sounds very timely as well, since it seems like we have a white flea in the White House. Yes. Can you remind our listeners what that book is called again? It's called 100 Demons by Linda Berry. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for coming back to the studio and for giving us your recommendation. Sounds fantastic. Thank you. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our interview with Sarah Manguso, author of 300 Arguments. while reading this book, I found myself wondering sometimes what your relationship was to the internet. Wait, are we in a relationship? (laughs) What did he say? (laughs) You are, whether you like it or not, right? Just because it felt to me that speaking about discipline and about your form, that your work is sometimes diametrically opposed to something like the internet, where it's this profusion, it's expansive. Oh, I see what you mean. A total goddamn mess. Yeah, but But, I mean, it's like a mess composed of messes and not messes. Yeah. It's like adding a negative and a positive number, or I don't know. No, multiplying? No, I, okay, I'm going to leave that metaphor aside. But but yes, (laughs) there is mess on the internet, but there is also beauty and perfection and rigor and discipline and, Mm -hmm. and constraint and all of those things. I like the line about why you never joined Facebook because you wanted to preserve, again, you preserve longing. Was that? I don't know. Yeah, I want to preserve my old longings and also yours. Right. Yeah, I don't need to see a photograph of somebody who 
just captivated me every part of my conscious and unconscious mind when I was 15. I, you know, I don't want to see what he looks like at like age 50. That's like, who is that for? Like, who wants that? Right. I, I don't want that narrative. I just want the beauty. I want the moment, the beautiful moment. Not to put too romantic a spin on my actual life, but I mean, there were certain people I never want to see again because I saw them when they were perfect and just so amazing and hot and sexy and yeah. uncompleted, you know, relationships with them and to them. Right. There's something so valuable about that. There are limits to the pleasure of knowing everything, right? I agree. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, which is not to say that I don't just furiously Google people sometimes, <laughs> but I don't want to see it all. I agree. And I really appreciated the discussion of desire in the book as being something that seems to sometimes hang in a balance and could be pushed over the edge if entertained too much, but then also can exist just in almost a theoretical space of contemplation. Yeah, it doesn't work in a place where everything's finished and resolved. Right. And I enjoy feeling unsatisfied desire to a certain Mm -hmm. extent. I think everybody does. So people who are just chasing novelty after novelty after novelty, I mean, if you could just stop, then... You could just maintain what, you know, the desires that you have and not have to keep chasing novelty. I don't know. Now I'm thinking about one person in particular who I used to know a long time ago and, you know, and God bless him. But it was exhausting being around somebody who was just completing thing after thing after thing after experience (laughs) after experience. Right. Even the way you talk about travel or write about travel in the book of kind of, you know, when you're traveling, you have to deal with a new routine. And when you're home or in your old routine, you can finally kind of be free to think to know yourself or... That is my excuse for not traveling. (laughs) Right. And having moved so much, how are you feeling about your routine right now? It's not bad. It's routine. Well, have you found it in Los Angeles? Well, at the risk of turning this into a mom-versation, I will say that what has sort of obliterated my writing routine, if I ever had such a thing, has not been moving five times in six years. It's been having a kid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it's not that, like, it's all hands on deck all the time, but it's the potential for my needing to drop everything is enough to interrupt this feeling of freedom that I can really sit down and work. You know, I'm not hypervigilant at all times, but I'm like 22% vigilant at all times. And that's enough to sort of mess up a writing routine, Mm, which is not to say that I'm not working. I'm just working in a different way. I'm working sort of willy-nilly, which wasn't a way that I worked before. And you've written about the change that you have undergone in terms of thinking about your writing, thinking about memory, thinking about how one creates records, particularly after you had your son. You really explore this in your book, Ongoingness, which came out in 2015. And part of that book was talking about a diary that you kept for decades and how your relationship to writing and to memory and record changed after your child was born. Can you tell us a little bit about that change or that shift? You start talking about it a little bit just now and what it might look like today, you know, mm-hmm. oh, now sure. two or three years later. Yeah, five years later. Jesus. Five years later. Well, ongoingness was about the experience of no longer feeling this driving need to record everything all the time. And it's about the discovery, a rather mundane discovery, that the diary was neither necessary nor sufficient, that I remembered things that I thought 
I couldn't possibly have remembered, but that, you know, memories that resurfaced while I was spending time with this proto person, this infant, I remembered things from my own infancy that, you know, if you had said to me that people could remember such things, I would not have believed you before that. And, you know, and it's also utterly laughable that I thought it would be this document that included everything, you know, everything that I ever needed to think about or stop thinking about. It can't be done in writing, which is why we now have dash cams and other things like that to try to record everything. And it wasn't this so-called end of the diary. It wasn't quite as dramatic a stoppage, I guess, as it may sound from the subtitle of that book, but the diary is different now. I still record, it's a digital document, I still record Mm -hmm. text every day. I save text into it every day. But lately, and this is maybe over the past couple of weeks, I've noticed that it's primarily become a commonplace book and that there are some sort of odds and ends of writing and thinking that aren't just directly lifted from the things that I read. You know, the ratio changes and I expect it you know, it might change again at some point. Hence the ongoing. Hence the ongoingness. Yes, yeah. hence the title. And now yeah. I've talked about the title and the subtitle. <laughs> right. So um, so that's basically it, the whole thing. I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about, I know, I guess sometimes you're billed as a memoirist, right? But talk about disclosure in your work. Something I appreciate about this book, as I was mentioning, is the discussion of sexual longing. And there's, you know, a lot of, discussion of envy and depression and regret. And it's all very open and I think it's very revealing, but at the same time, there's not a lot of proper names. It's not so particular exactly, you know, about your life. And even in ongoingness, you know, writing a book about a diary and not quoting directly the diary. So so what's up it, with that? <laughs> so how does that work yeah, for you? Yeah, so what's yeah. up with that? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Well, I will say that my decision not to include any of the diary and ongoingness wasn't done out of coyness or, you know, any sort of dance of the seven veils, you know, maybe I could draw them in by not saying (laughs) it. Um, It was simply that I could not imagine excerpting, you know, an 800,000 word document in a way that was, first of all, responsible to the form of the document, and second of all, would shed light on this essay that I'd written about the document. Although... I do disclose things that, you know, I I do write about in the diary itself. And I wouldn't say that I'm particularly secretive about the basic circumstances of my life. I write about them all the time. I, you know, I have a chronic illness. My friend died. I got married. I had a kid. You know, I'm a writer. I teach. It's all in the books. I mean, it's all, it's all, that is the material. And, you know, as for being accused of disclosing a lot, I will say that, And there definitely is like a sliding scale of disclosing a little or a lot. And my decision of what to disclose isn't in the end about, you know, like what what I could stand to share or what I don't want to share. It's it's that that was that's just not an interesting question to me because it's all about the way that you disclose it. It's all about the form that you, you know, eventually choose to use as this delivery system for something to make somebody feel something or understand something. And I do want to feel that a reader has a kind of intimate awareness of what I'm writing about, but the fact that I'm writing about myself is, it's almost beside the point. And it also seems like a further condensation of, you know, making it even sharper as opposed to filling it in with lots of details of 
this place or that place or this person's name or yeah, just details. kind of details. bringing it, cooking it down even further. Yeah, I don't really understand how details work. Clearly, I need to write more about this, but there is a line in 300 Arguments, details are not automatically interesting. Mm-hmm. And I do mm-hmm. feel secure about claiming that. There were points in reading 300 Arguments where I longed for gossip. I felt it within yeah, my reach. Yeah, you both. Yeah. Who doesn't love <laughs> there, gossip? There is gossip. <laughs> there is, uh, yeah, yeah, but I, I wanted specific bits oh, yeah? of gossip. Um, yeah. Well, what would you like to know? <laughs> oh, I didn't know this was an option. <laughs> oh, well, I, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to give you what you what you desire, but you want like the names of people and books and places and yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But there 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 I was don't know about that. I felt a little tug. Uh-huh. I was like, "Oh. Oh, if which, I could just get names oh, for which this." Oh, one? Oh, it was one in particular? There were a number of them. A number? There was well, Now um, you're being coy. <laughs> I am being coy. Well, I don't know what we can reveal. I can't reveal. The the one that I was wondering about was one of them was you had wished ill on mm. a, a person oh mm-hmm. yeah on an unnamed writer who had prevented you from getting a job and then he just seemed like that in fact came true and uh, yeah, bad yeah. things happened to that person i, was I will say well was. I, I did not i don't know that i specified that it was a writer oh so there's your big clue oh, oh. interesting see that very really narrows I, I filled it in well, i actually yeah. filled it in with a very specific person oh that's fascinating <laughs> i would love to know well a little <laughs> bit later maybe, maybe, you'll, maybe later. i can get her to tell me yeah, yeah. <laughs> wish me luck um, were you conscious of some kind of narrative did start to arise with placement of the arguments too much of a parallel narrative let's say were you conscious of trying to throw that off a little bit or not wanting to have such an implied narrative in the book or well i think the book is it is a narrative you know that was deliberate i I wanted there to be you know a sort of forward propulsion from the beginning to the end and i i know i don't mind sharing that there used to be seven sections in the book Um. and in order and and you know and the arguments remain in order within their sections, I just removed the section breaks because ultimately I found that they were unnecessary. But you'll see that the ones in the beginning are about understanding the self and then others, and then come the ones about desire and art and work and failure and death and, you know, an oblivion, you know, other kinds of death. You know, these sections are not quite as literal as they sound, but, you know, a friend of mine looked at them and he said, oh, it's the basic human narrative. And I thought, <laughs> Yeah, it is a narrative. I wrote a narrative. Yeah. Finally. No, not finally. But what did you mean, though, about like a parallel narrative? Well, I just mean like, you know, a book that was popular a few years ago, that Jenny Offal book, where it's told in fragments, but it uncovers a story of, you know, a husband and wife splitting apart an affair and a child. Right, right. So you're thinking about Jenny Ophiel, the, the person. Well, that book in particular seemed to have, you know, there was a veneer of the text and I thought the narrative was it was conveyed but it was also implied it wasn't told it was seems like almost like she replaced one with another pushing the veneer forward but behind you could still tell there was like a full maybe more conventional narrative going oh I see behind, you know what I, I'm yeah maybe, you don't, no no I see what you're saying yeah she's she's giving you just enough that you can kind of see the whole right the whole of it looming behind exactly the the sharp the, the parts in sharp relief and and, sharp and, focus. and I wouldn't say I felt that way with this book in that there was some I mean, not that it was anti-narrative because there were lots of connections. And I think you, you know, could obviously tell that you're a writer, you're a mother, you're married, you know, right. 
Oh, well, let me be perfectly yeah. clear. This is about me. I mean, I mean it, no, it, it of is. Course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the letter the, or the pronoun I is prevalent. And yeah. yeah, and I've written about myself before. And this is definitely a continuation of the work that I've done in previous books that were also about me. Yes. But again, that it was very contained within the text on the page and not that to understand it, one didn't need to fill in a lot of the blanks that it was kind of yeah. there. Well, I, you know, I don't even like thinking of them as blanks. It's right. just, this is the form that I made. Right, mm-hmm. right. You know, yeah. you know, I hope that it comes across as a complete form. Oh, I think it does. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I was going to say wasn't fishing, but thank you, but I, <laughs> I kind of was hey, fishing. It's a <laughs> fishing and thank you. Maybe you could read just a little bit more of the book for us. Sure. Okay. Here's a passage from the middle of the book. Nothing is more boring to me than the re-re-restatement that language isn't sufficiently nuanced to describe the world. Of course language isn't enough. Accepting that is the starting point of using it to capacity, of increasing its capacity. Dying young can really help an art career along. It's the careerist's ultimate paradox. I read your work hoping to find flaws, I stop reading it, fearing its perfection. My favorite jokes are either the simplified restatement of a received obfuscation or onstage glee followed by offstage disappointment. But knowing that doesn't make me able to write jokes any more than having an idea for a story makes me able to tell one. I used to write these while playing hooky on what I hoped would be my magnum opus. Assigning myself to write 300 of them was like forcing myself to chain smoke until I puked, but it didn't work. I didn't puke. For me, the greatest thrill of Rome was walking into the forum, picking up a piece of ancient stone where it lay, and dropping it somewhere else. Thank you, Sarah. My pleasure. I wanted to ask one more question about a subject that you've written about in the past and that you brought up in the discussion here, but we haven't had a chance to really talk about it, which is your illness mm-hmm. and that you had an illness that started when you were in your 20s, yes. right? You were very young. How has that affected your relationship with your body, with your writing? Yeah. And how, how you think about that yeah, human narrative, it? because it must, <laughs> right? It changes it. It must <clears throat> change it in some way. It does. And... You know, we were, before the recording device turned on, we were talking about, this lovely intern and I were talking about public school versus private school. And, you know, she sort of very neatly said, well, you know, I went to public school and then I went to private school. And with the understanding that, like, and that was my default experience. So, like, that's what I know. Mm-hmm. And and I find myself asking that kind of question without thinking all the time, like, oh, what what was it like to grow up here? What was it like to have, like, a million brothers and sisters? And the answer is that it was your default experience. And so for me, being 21 mm-hmm. and, you know, so having to drop out of college and just be in intensive care for weeks at a time, like, that that was my default experience, you know? So it's, it's extremely right. hard to kind of dissever that from, you know, the other 21 that I sort of imagined that I, that I wished I had been having right, instead, like you know? But it, again, it's just this imaginary control group or the control experience that I can't really, I don't, yeah, exactly. I, I didn't have it. Mm-hmm. I didn't have it. I will say that the illness is, I wouldn't say ever present, but it's just, it's one of the things following me around, you know, after mm-hmm. I, 
finished my book, you know, after I published the book, The Two Kinds of Decay, which is about that illness, since then, 2008, I've had two relapses, and I've been in remission for three years. So those are my stats, and I expect I will have another one at some point. And yet, you know, I don't expect every day when I wake up, I don't dread every day that that's going to be the day. Mm -hmm. There are, yeah, there, you know, writing about something like an ongoing relapse remitting chronic illness is something that's been treated in a lot of other books. And, you know, I'm always looking for great examples of that form. Thank you, Sarah, for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's my pleasure. Thank you. We've been speaking with Sarah Manguso, author of 300 Arguments. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Our executive producers are Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf. Editorial advisor, Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. Our engineer is Ernesto Oliano. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production volunteer, Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, to No One's Moral Conscious for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books.